Hello, everyone, and welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's. We're starting a new worship series called Dysfunctional Perspectives. Um, It's really about how we move from kind of dysfunctional understandings of our relationships with others into more healthy relationships and more functional um, and what our responsibility is in that. And during this sermon series, we're going to be looking at Old Testament pairs, um, people that are in the same family unit and are struggling with a an issue between them um, um, and, and how they relate to God in the midst of it. And what if they change their perspective as they lead their lives differently? Um, along with using the book of Genesis, we're also going to be using Rabbi Jonathan Sachs' book's Lessons on Leadership. So you can pick that book up. But our lecturer, of course, is our good friend, Dr. Ryan Budfilio from Candler's Foundry. And uh, this week we're going to be looking at Cain and Abel from Genesis 4. And the perspective and the key word for this is responsibility. So how do we change a relationship from dysfunctional to functional by taking some personal responsibility for one another? And so let's listen to Dr. Ryan. Hey everyone and welcome. My name is Ryan Bonfilio and I teach Old Testament here at Emory's Candler School of Theology. Over the past couple years, I've had the chance to get to know many of you quite well as I've taught a number of different courses at St. Luke's UMC. I'm so, so glad to be back with you. In so many ways, your church has felt like a home church for me or maybe a home church away from home. I've told Pastor Jen that if the traffic wasn't so bad between Atlanta and Orlando, I would be a member at St. Luke's. In this course, I'll have the added pleasure of co-teaching with my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Elizabeth or E.B. Arnold. Many of you have gotten to know E.B. over the years as she also has taught courses at St. Luke's. So some of the sessions in this course I will teach, others E.B. will teach, we'll go back and forth, we'll also go back and forth with one another in joining you for your Wednesday night conversations. Now the course that we have uh, coming up here has this amazing title, dysfunctional relationships. And if that title doesn't get you in the room for a Bible study, I don't know what will. In this study, dysfunctional relationships, we will be exploring some of the complicated characters that we discover in the book of Genesis. And when I say characters, I mean characters in the fullest possible sense of that term. You see, the individuals we find in Genesis, from Cain to Abel, Rebecca and Sarah are anything but two-dimensional. In some moments, we find these figures making faithful decisions, trusting in God's promises, and leaning into their callings. But at the same time, these same people struggle and doubt. They bicker and they quarrel. They get wrapped up in violence and jealousy. If Genesis, I've often thought, were a TV series on HBO, its characters would look more like Logan Roy than Mr. Rogers. It would, they would look more like Claire Underwood than Claire Huxtable. Now, making matters even more interesting is the fact that all of these deeply flawed characters are actually part of the same extended family system. Cain and Abel are brothers, Lot is Abraham and Sarah's nephew, Isaac and Rebecca are married, Joseph and his siblings are all children of Jacob. The flaws of these individuals often then get played out in what are extremely dysfunctional family systems. 
Not only do the sins of the parents spill out on the lives of their children, but things like birth order and parental favoritism, have you heard of those things? They also get wrapped up in the drama we see getting played out in Genesis. And so as readers of these ancient texts, I think we often are left to wonder, what do we do with biblical characters that are far from perfect? How does God factor into these stories about complex family relationships? And how might these stories guide how we live in relationship with one another today? We'll be exploring these types of questions throughout this five-week series. For now, I simply want to start things off by recommending two questions to be asking yourself as we read through the stories of these figures in Genesis. The first question is this. Where do you see yourself in the characters of Genesis? If you're anything like me, faith is core to your life, but it doesn't always translate into wise and faithful living. We are forgiven and accepted by God, we know that, but we also are still in process of becoming made more fully into the people God is calling us to be. The same is true of these ancient characters. They, like us, are full of contradictions. I think one of the reasons why scripture is so honest about the flaws of these ancient figures is because it makes them more relatable. In fact, I've often thought of Genesis functioning like a mirror. These characters reflect back to us our own struggles and the dynamics in our own lives and families that need refining and improving. So as we try to come to terms with our own flaws and maybe even our own families, we at the same time take a step closer to the characters in Genesis. Another way of saying it is that in the stories of these ancient characters, we find our own stories. So that's the first question I want you to keep in mind. Where do you see yourself in the characters of Genesis? The second question is this. How does God show up in the midst of these dysfunctional families? If you think about it, what's remarkable about these stories is not the faithfulness of these ancient figures to God, but rather it's the faithfulness of God to these ancient people. In fact, we might say that these figures are merely supporting actors in a drama that in the end really is about God. Page after page, what we find in the book of Genesis is a God who relentlessly pursues and sticks with the ancestors, not because of their good behavior, but in spite of it. The Hebrew word for this resolve to stick with the ancestors is this wonderful word, chesed. It's often translated as loving kindness, but in Hebrew it has this connotation of referring to God's fierce loyalty in the context of a covenant. Now, going back many years, my high school wrestling coach made up this wonderful word to describe our need to relentlessly pursue our training goals. And that word was stick-to-itiveness, stick-to-itiveness. And I love that word, and it actually would be a really good translation of the Hebrew word chesed. What we find in Genesis is God's stick-to-itiveness to the ancestors. God's hesed, I would argue, is the dominant theme in the book of Genesis. And if you think of it, that's the core promise of the whole story of Christianity. Through Jesus, God is in relentless pursuit of us. The good news of the gospel is God's stick-to-itiveness. Our story is, in the end, the story of Genesis. So to recap, when you're reading these stories, I encourage you to ask yourself two questions. First, 
where do I see myself in these characters and in, this, in their family drama? And second, how does God's chesed or relentless loyalty make a difference in these relationships? Now, with all this in mind, let's briefly turn to the first story of family dysfunction that we encounter. It's the story of Cain and Abel. Now, in truth, we might say that the first story of family dysfunction in Genesis actually is with Adam and Eve, but we're going to start with their children, with Cain and Abel. We encounter this story in Genesis 4, and it's really quite short. It's only 16 verses. Let's recap kind of what happens, and then we'll look at a few details of how the story plays out. So Cain and Abel are siblings. So the first children of Adam and Eve. Cain is the elder and Abel is the younger. We know little else about them other than that Cain is a farmer, he works the land, and Abel is a shepherd, he looks after the flocks. And this becomes an important detail later on in the story. You see, when it comes time to make an offering to the Lord, Abel naturally brings an animal from his flock. Remember, he's a shepherd. While Cain brings fruits of the field, right? He's a farmer. Without providing any explanation, the text tells us that God had regard for or paid attention to Abel's offering, but not Cain's. And this infuriates Cain. A mixture of anger and resentment wells up in him, and he kills his brother in the field. Soon enough, God comes along and asks Cain where Abel is, and Cain replies with the famous words, Am I my brother's keeper? God curses the ground that Cain is left to want, and Cain is left to wander the earth, estranged from his family. This dynamic might sound familiar to you because it's almost exactly what we encounter in the story of Adam and Eve. After their sin in the garden, God curses the ground, and they are driven away to wander the earth. Patterns of sin can repeat themselves, even across generations, back then, and I think today too. So, What's driving Cain's anger? I think in one way, it's an age-old problem between siblings. Cain is angry that Abel is getting more attention than him. The spotlight here is on Abel and his offering. Abel seems to be God's favorite, and Cain doesn't like it. Trust me, Cain is not the last older brother to be angry at a younger sibling for stealing the spotlight. And he's not the last person to fret about his sibling being more favored than him. In fact, we find the same dynamic is going to be at play in the story of Jacob and his brother Esau, and also Joseph and his brothers. But here's the thing. Cain is mad that he is not getting enough attention, even though God has assured him that he is accepted. Let's look more closely at verse 7. God says this, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. See what's happening in this verse is that God affirms that just because Cain, that just because he is paying attention to Abel at this particular moment, Cain's acceptance is not in question. But Cain really struggles to believe this. This dynamic in many ways reminds me of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. Do you remember that story? In it, it's the older sibling who is angry that his younger brother, who was run away from home and squandered his wealth, now has returned and is getting more attention from the father. And much like in Genesis 4, the father in Jesus' parable assures the elder brother that he is still accepted when he says the words, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine 
is yours. You see, in both stories, the elder son has confused attention for acceptance. And isn't that often the case with us too? Whether we are the older sibling or not, don't we often wonder, will I still be accepted if I'm not at the center of attention? If the spotlight is on someone else's needs, someone else's problems, will I still be included and loved? Is God's acceptance big enough to include me and my brother? Genesis 4, much like the parable of the prodigal son, tells us the answer is yes. But to embrace this truth, we'll have to make sure that our desire for attention doesn't overshadow God's promise of acceptance. Now let's jump to another important moment in the story, and it's just after the murder has taken place, and God asks Cain where his brother is. And in response, Cain famously asks, am I my brother's keeper? Of course, Cain thinks that the answer is no. It's not his job, after all, to protect and preserve his brother's life and his interests. He might even be thinking, I'm not the keeper in this family. That's Abel's job. Remember, he's the one who keeps the flocks. Cain's words are an effort to deflect responsibility. He wants to claim that he's only responsible for himself and thus can't be held responsible for the well-being of others, including his brother. His is a philosophy of individualism. In American culture, we often celebrate rugged individualism. Think about John Wayne, or maybe more recently, Kevin Costner's character in the show Yellowstone. They're tough, they're self-reliant, they forge their own destinies, they achieve the American dream of pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. These characteristics of individualism aren't all bad, but from the very beginning, Scripture emphasizes humanity's responsibility to be keepers of all creation. In Genesis 2.15, the first humans and Cain's parents are placed in the garden to work it and to keep it. That same word keep is used elsewhere to describe the responsibility of parents to protect and provide for their children. The word keep is also used in reference to keeping the commandments, many of which are about preserving and protecting the well-being of the community, not the individual. In the scriptures, one of the fundamental responsibilities of being human is to be a keeper. It is a sacred calling. It is, if you will, the essential ingredient of flourishing communities. We simply can't build communities of compassion and justice apart from this calling to be one another's keepers. Being a keeper means we not only recognize our own sin, but also our own interconnectedness with the sins and well-being of those who've gone before us. This past summer, King Wilhelm Alexander of the Netherlands issued an apology for his country's involvement in the slave trade. He asked forgiveness for what he called the clear failure to act in the face of this crime against humanity. King Wilhelm himself never owned a slave. Indeed, slavery was abolished in the Netherlands <coughs> excuse me, over 100 years before he was born. But in making this statement, the king recognizes that responding to our call to be our brother's keeper goes beyond just not perpetrating the sins of our fathers. It involves acknowledging how we might have benefited from those sins and then working actively to bring about healing and justice for the whole community. When seen in this light, Cain's words, am I my brother's keeper, is not just a denial 
of what he had done to his brother. It's a denial of his sacred calling to live and labor for the well-being of his neighbor and indeed all of creation. Now, this brings us to the last note I want to make about this story, and it has to do with the curious ending. In verse 15, we learn that God places a mark on Cain. How are we to understand what this mark is? Well, many past interpreters of Scripture have suggested that this mark, uh, or that this mark uh, indicates that Cain is a sinner. It's like a mark of shame, something like the scarlet letter in the famous Hawthorne book. But if you look more closely at the biblical text, you realize that this is not the case at all. God places the mark on Cain in order to protect him from anyone who might want to harm him for the crime he has committed. It's like a do not touch sign. The mark is God's way of trying to put an end to violence. God is not condoning what Cain has done, but at the same time, God says the blood set shed stops here. This is God's chesed in vivid color. I find this to be a remarkable intrusion of grace into this story. Violence and death and injustice do not have the last word in Genesis 4, and neither do they have the last word for us. Through Christ, we all have been marked, if you will, with the mark of Cain, despite our sin, despite our failures, despite our dysfunctional families and, and, and internal lives, despite all of these things, we are marked, friends, with forgiveness and hope. Perhaps think of this mark as something akin to the ashes we might wear on our heads in Lent. Like the mark of Cain, the ashes of Lent indicate uh, that we belong to God and that we belong to one another. They mark us for grace in a world that is so ready to mark us with division, with shame, and with guilt. So even here in Genesis 4, in the midst of dysfunction, we find God's hesed, God's grace, breaking through. May it be so for us as well. 